Well, uh, so far, so good. <laughs> Everybody seems to be doing well. And, and I'm guessing and hoping uh, that you're doing well, not only in this uh, short retreat, but also uh, that you were doing really well before the retreat started and that you'll be doing well after the retreat is over. Uh, you all look pretty healthy to me. And you look like uh, probably your lives are going pretty well. At least, I hope that's true. Uh, we all have uh, very promising lives, privileged lives. There's so much uh, all of us can do. And we all have uh, high aspirations and lots of energy and lots of possibilities. And uh, most of us here probably are Americans, I guess. And uh, so we've all been raised with the idea that uh, life is good. And uh, if we apply ourselves, we can expect to do well. Yes, uh, not everything's going to be easy. Of course, there'll be some setbacks, but we will overcome them. We'll work hard, and our hard work will be rewarded. And if you have a good family and friends, community, then you'll have positive associations and you'll have all the help you need to have a good life. And we're all aware that this is not the case. All these things that we probably all count on, we are aware it's not the case in other parts of the world. Is bad as things can sometimes seem uh, in some communities in our country, uh, they're a lot worse in other places. There are places where uh, there is crushing poverty, unbelievable and outrageous injustice, daily violence uh, everywhere. No health care at all. And so on and on and on. So we're, we're really fortunate. We really have a good life. Not only that, but we know about mindfulness and meditation and how helpful you know, this is to us. So already we're doing pretty good, but we can be, be doing better because of meditation practice and mindfulness practice. We can be calmer. We can be more aware. Maybe we can even be more compassionate, nicer people. And we have uh, Buddha Dharma, which is a very wonderful thing. And nowadays it's even popular and valid in the culture, which didn't used to be, you know. It used to be for wackos and strange people. But now, you can be a respectable person and, and practice Buddhism. Because it's legitimate. It's almost scientific Buddhism. It's not supernatural and superstitious like a lot of these other religions might be. No dogma, right? The Buddhism will work well for us. It will make our life better. Plus, if you do a little yoga, eat organic food, well, you have every reason to expect that you will do really well and live a long life and be healthy. And all of this is true. I mean, I'm, I'm, we should all be doing this because it's all true. But we spent the day on the four reflections. And we know that even though all this is true, and even though we can, it's a good idea to do all these things and take care of ourselves, actually, if we reflect a little bit more 
deeply on our human condition, we do recognize that uh, when you get down to it, really, life is not all that easy. And it doesn't usually work out uh, as it's advertised to work out. Because uh, every single day on Earth, and there are no exceptions to this, time is going by. No one can prevent this, no one can change this. And with time comes aging, loss, possibly dwindling of power and enthusiasm. What was at one time delightful and fresh, some years down the road, is routine, tired, boring, possibly even now annoying. Have you had that experience? Something you really love now becomes annoying to you? Humdrum and annoying. In other words, something you really wanted, something that was satisfactory, just with the simple passage of time becomes unsatisfactory. This can be true in work, career, and it can be just as true in human relationships. Nowadays, everybody understands very well how difficult it is to maintain a healthy, loving human relationship with another human being. And that's the problem, that it's another human being just like us. No wonder it's so difficult to maintain a good relationship. Because like everybody, you know, the other person wants what they want, just like we want what we want. They have their point of view, just like we have our point of view. We're wounded. They're wounded. We're misunderstood. They're misunderstood. No wonder. It's so hard. No wonder there's so much conflict. Conflict in intimate relationships, among friends, acquaintances, co-workers, communities, nations, conflicts that lead to lawsuits, betrayals, broken relationships, war, violence, endless social pain that goes on for generations. This is not the exception. This is the rule. Just uh, read the newspaper. When the retreat is over, I guarantee you, you go read the newspaper and you'll find the story that I'm talking about. Because it's always in the newspaper every single day. It has been since the first day that people shared the news, could talk about what happened. So, it is the most natural thing in the world that we would all try to protect ourselves from this madness. Maybe it's normal for anyone to be guarded in human relationships. I mean, we're all nice, polite, but let's not get too close because we might be hurt. We know because we have been hurt. Sometime between the day we were born and this day, we've all been hurt. Some of us terribly hurt in childhood, some of us less hurt later on in life, but we've all been hurt. And we've all been scarred, and we've all decided, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm not going to let myself be vulnerable like that again. I think somewhere inside of us, we all have that kind of story, one way or the other. Maybe it's such a deeply ingrained story with us that we don't even share it with anybody. 
we don't think about it, we don't talk about it, maybe we hardly, barely even admit it to ourselves. But there it is. Maybe you're married, happily married, and have a whole bunch of children. And still, this is true, still, deep, deep inside, you're protecting yourself all the time with every encounter. And the, and the news is a problem, you know, every day they beam at us the news now through more and more outlets. So you try your best not to think about it much. You reduce it almost to a cartoon, far away, bizarre things happening to far away people. Can't be helped, nothing to be done. Because you know, if you really let yourself feel what goes on every day in this world, it would maybe be too much. Or maybe you do feel it, maybe you do let it in. And it is too much. Some days you feel bewildered and overwhelmed just to know, you know what happened today in our human world. And then you try not to think about the fact that you are getting older. You're not as young as you were. I think that's true of all of us in the room. And for some of us, it's really true. We're not as young as we were. We really are not as young as we were. We're not even young anymore. We're not even middle-aged anymore, maybe. But where is that thought going? Let's not think about that. Where do we go from here? Well, I'm not sure. And you know that you don't know and that you really cannot control what lies ahead. That's true for all of us. And then there are all the losses. Worse, the older you are, people who have left you one way or another, people who were in your life that aren't anymore. Some of them died. People close to you. Death. There's another problem. As we've been reflecting today, you know, there it is. You can't avoid it. You don't understand it. It makes no sense. No one has the faintest idea what is the referent for the English word death. If I say chair, we all have a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about. But if we say death, we have no idea. And yet, there it is. So, when someone in your life is gravely ill, or does die, you are a good person, you send flowers, you send cards, you say the things that people say, but actually you don't know what to make of it, it's bewildering. You really don't know what to say, you really don't know what to do, so you send that card and then you try to think about something else, try to distract yourself. Maybe you try to help, maybe you send soup over. Maybe you say, uh, I'll help take you to the doctor. But when you really look 
deeply at what you're doing, you realize that, you know, this is a way to make yourself feel better. This is a way to feel like you're doing something useful. When the truth is, you're doing these things because it is impossible to face what's going on. Because it's too much. And we now have brilliantly, I mean, it's prodigious, created a world in which there are so many distractions that you don't have to think about any of this stuff because there's so many things, movies to watch, and somebody just made the most brilliant new HBO series that you have to watch and talk about and read what they say on Facebook about it. And and your to-do list has its own to-do lists. <laughs> Plus, you have to take four or five days off now and then go to a retreat like this, which means that all the stuff is piling up. When you go home, you'll be really busy. Everybody has a full calendar, a full life, many chores. I, I've Little grandchildren, they have full calendars. <laughs> I have to make appointments if I want to see my grandchildren. That's true. Because they're busy. They have a lot of things going on. The places to be, things to do. <laughs> Meantime, the political world, the social world, the environmental world, and sometimes the personal world, all slowly by slowly collapsing. Everybody knows this. There's nothing to be done. Life is tough. And we have to be honest, we've been reflecting on this all day long. So I know that I'm not telling you something you don't already know. Everybody knows everything I'm saying here. Those of you who've been practicing uh, Buddhism for a while know that this is the first noble truth. All conditioned existence is suffering, has the nature of suffering. Even the pleasantness that we're seeking and sometimes finding. Because, you know, we have wonderful things happen in our lives, right? But even those things have the nature of suffering because they don't last. And they cannot really be a consolation for our deepest human problems and our underlying dread. So as we were saying earlier today, in response to something that was raised, The Buddhist path, and, and I think not even the Buddhist path, just the path of being a human being begins when we face this reality. When we recognize that no life is a successful life, that all worldly measures of success are in the end false, even including the kind of vague notion of being a good person that we're all sad creatures struggling on a limited planet for as long as it lasts. Now, I'm not saying all this to get you really depressed. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me, I do not want to get you depressed. I would like to cheer you up. I'm not saying this to get you depressed. Suffering is the first noble truth, and you have to digest that in the beginning of the path. That's how we begin. And if we don't begin by digesting real, realistically and seriously this truth, we can't really begin. We do have to get beyond our denial, our distraction, our avoidance, and actually confront this point if we ever want to be happy. To actually admit who we really are and what this human life really amounts to and to try our best not to be scared. I went for a walk today, and down there it says, Narrow Bridge, because there's a narrow bridge, you know? And it made me think of 
the famous saying of Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, who said, uh, the whole world is a narrow bridge, I guess, over a vast abyss. And the only important thing is don't be scared. Once we are willing to take this in, we will notice the other three noble truths all of a sudden appear and now become actual possibilities. That there's a cause to this suffering and that there's an end to this suffering and that there's a path that will lead us to that end. In other words, recognizing the thoroughgoingness of suffering and being willing to really take that in as we've been practicing all day long today will eventually lead to a path of real, deep, and lasting happiness. Not a band-aid, but a real transformation. And this really is possible, and it really is doable. But we have to realize that the path of happiness does not go around the suffering. It goes through it. And, and that's what compassion practice is about. Now here's the good news about how pathetic we all are and what a mess we all are and how hopeless the whole thing is. The good news about that is that it's universally true. It's true of all of us, not only, not just some of us, it's true of all of us. Think about this. If you've ever been miserable, what makes you miserable? What makes you miserable is the thought that everything is falling apart for me and everybody else is fine. You know, it's the comparison between me and my, what a mess I am and how, how terrible I am and other people who are doing well. That's what really makes us miserable. You'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think, well, I may be a wreck, but everybody else is doing good, so that's nice. But we don't think that way, you know. <laughs> we think the opposite way. It makes us feel worse, right, doesn't it? The fact that other people seem to be normal when we're not. We think we should be doing better. Others are doing better. The Buddhists, maybe they're doing better. The Zen masters, they must be doing really great. But poor us, you know, what a wreck we are. What's wrong with us? But this is actually not the case. We're all wrecks together. That's the good news. We're wrecks together. I mean, you know, the, this horrendous human condition with all its limitations, we all share it exactly the same way. And that's what's so beautiful about it. We all know each other deeply. We are all connected to one another poignantly because we all share this big problem. We are more connected to one another than we could even imagine. And the suffering of this world is actually not a mistake. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's not the fault of our parents, although they're popular ones to blame. <laughs> it's not the fault of our ancestors in the past. It's just the way life is, and it's exactly what connects us. It's what binds us together. If only we would allow ourselves to feel the suffering and the loss fully and appreciate it for what it really is, the very nature of life, the beauty of life, the joy of life is absolutely connected to the suffering. If we would recognize things for what they are, we would see that the suffering is actually beautiful and connects us to one another. The miracle of this world and of each and every person, without exception, 
every cloud, every blade of grass is exactly that it's suffering. And that suffering is also love because we are completely united in that suffering. And that is the love. Maybe we feel isolated and alone, but in actual fact, there is no such thing as aloneness. Maybe we feel powerless or foolish or lost, lost. But these things don't actually exist as such. The truth of the matter is that we are here together in a beautiful world. And yes, it's sad, too. And that's what makes it so beautiful. It's beautiful because it's sad. And it's sad because it's beautiful. And each and every one of us is beautiful. That's the truth. You know, we all see our, very, our many flaws. But those are the flaws we need to be the beautiful person that we are right now in our lives. Each life is perfectly as it needs to be, no matter what any of us think. And each life is a mystery, a journey, unfolding in light and at immeasurable depth. So yes, life is tough. Tougher than we are willing to face. It's always been that way. You could make a case, as some do, that it's worse now than ever because uh, now we're facing our human limits, our planetary limits. And, and the problems that we face in this regard are unknown and, and possibly overwhelming. We, we don't even have the political will to begin to work on them. We all know this, and what can anybody do but shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just how it is. Let's not think about it. It's impossible. So, now more than ever, I don't think any of us can afford to go on in the usual way. Can't afford to go on looking at our lives the way we've always looked at our lives. I, I am absolutely convinced that in this time that we're living in, everybody needs to be a serious spiritual practitioner. Everybody needs to have a spiritual vision of some depth for their lives. We don't have to be Buddhists, we don't have to be members of any particular organized religion, but we do have to find a serious alternative vision for our lives beyond conventional success and failure, beyond our limited materialism and task-drivenness. We all need a life. And we need to do whatever it takes to develop that vision for our lives and to sustain it. To me, this is just a practical necessity, just as necessary as having a place to live. You just can't get along without it. And in this vision for our lives, love and compassion is the key. Facing something really difficult by yourself is really, really hard. Facing something difficult in the company of many others whom you love and respect and who will help you and whom you will help is inspiring. 
and it brings out the best in everyone and it makes us all happy. So it's very clear that we need to find a path of love and compassion, radical love and compassion for our lives, to survive this life and to bring the world forward to future generations. We really, really need that path. And it begins with accepting suffering and connecting to one another through the suffering. Accepting difficulty not as something to be avoided, not as a mistake or a problem that we have to solve, but as a natural consequence of this beautiful life and as an opportunity for more love and more compassion and more connection to others, more liberation from the narrow confines of our own little lives and our own little points of view. Buddhism has a, a word for this vision. The Bodhisattva path, it's called. This is the vision. This love and compassion in this grand scale is the vision of a Bodhisattva. A Bodhisattva is a being who is utterly and completely devoted to trying to understand life at its depth for the purpose of being with, loving, and benefiting others. That's why the Bodhisattvas try to understand life, because they know that that's the way to benefit and love others. In the Mahayana Buddhist Sutras, Bodhisattvas are constantly making the most extravagant vows to practice, to benefit others forever and ever and ever. Not just for some piddly little human lifetime, what, 40, 50, 60, whatever years, but forever and ever, onward and onward, endless human lifetimes, to love others and try to be of some benefit, on and on. Bodhisattvas have many trials and tribulations, but as soon as they get knocked down, they pop right up again. And they keep on going. Like the Energizer Bunny, except infinite power. On and on, undaunted by the immensity of the job that they're undertaking. Not discouraged by it. Even inspired by the impossibility of it. The endlessness of it. They go on and on practicing love for and with others. That's the Bodhisattva's greatest joy. The fact that it's endless makes it even better. When losses and difficulties arise, the Bodhisattvas eat them up for breakfast and they just keep on going. They know that every difficulty is a way to make more love and more compassion. And they know that there's no end to deepening love and compassion. And there's no end to the joy that comes from this. So, this may sound to you a little fantastical. Like, yeah, but what about me? But that's only because you project your imagination from where you are now into the future you and you see, I can never be like that. It's just a cartoon. But actually, it's not. Actually, it is, it is doable. It is realistic. And it's always been normal for human beings. There always been, have been human beings like this. And I would wager that everybody in this room has known at least one bodhisattva that's just like this. Probably it was your grandmother. It was my grandmother. My grandmother was like that. Just kept going with a loving heart. Some people do exist like this. They're, they're around everywhere. Which means that each one of us could be that way. And there is a path. There is a way to develop it. Yes, it takes time and effort probably the rest of your life and lifetimes to come. You don't get to the end of the course and then go on to other things. What else do you go on to beyond this? There is nothing else to go on to. So the endlessness of it makes it just right.
So let me get practical and absolutely concrete about how you go about doing this. This is what you need to do. You need to have a daily practice. Around here, we like meditation. It's really good. Meditation is very accessible practice, but there are a lot of other practices. There's all kinds of chanting and prayer, different ways to practice, reinforcing a larger vision for your life. It has to be every day, more or less. And then, so you can do that at home. But then also you should go to a place like Spirit Rock, where you can sit with other people sometimes, practice with other people, in a regular disciplined way. Discipline, not just when you feel like it, but this is what you do. You have to make your spiritual practice not another thing on your list, but your highest priority. You have to realize that it's not just something nice or extra that you're doing for your life, like the many other things that you may be doing for your life. It is your life. This is your life. You need to make a connection with a spiritual teacher, someone who you feel shares and embodies this view, and you maintain that relationship. You maintain it in your heart, but also whenever you can, you practice with that teacher. You go to a retreat, a long retreat, you know, five days, seven days or more, every year. It's in your calendar, every year. That's what you do. And you listen to talks, you study teachings. If ritual is part of the practice, you do the ritual. And most importantly, most importantly, you pay close attention every single day to your life. You pay attention to what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And if you do these things that I've just said, which, I mean, this is not nothing. This is a lot of commitment. On the other hand, a regular person with a job and a family and everything else could actually do these things. And if you do these things, I will guarantee you that it won't take that long until you feel that you are living a new life, a life of love and compassion, a life of a bodhisattva. And I say this with confidence because I know a lot of people who do exactly this and report this to me, who tell me, that's what I'm doing, and that's how I feel. So I know it can be done by regular people. And I, and I know that although it takes some effort, it, it isn't that difficult, and it's, it's actually fun. Because then you're in a community with other people who are also doing this, and, and it's wonderful to do. So training in compassion the centrality of compassion to the, for the path is the cornerstone of uh, all the Mahayana Buddhist schools, Zen included. And even though um, the Vipassana uh, movement is nominally not a Mahayana school, here in the West, all schools of Buddhism recognize the centrality of compassion, regardless of their styles and their origins. So there are many, many teachings uh, in Buddhism uh, about uh, how to train in compassion. And the most famous uh, of them probably are the Lojong teachings and mind training teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. And as many of you know, I recently uh, wrote a book about these teachings. Um, the reason why I did that is because uh, Zen, in Zen, uh, the compassion teachings are, uh, in classical Zen literature, implicit. They're not explicit. Zen practitioners in Asia already understood 
the Mahayana Buddhist context for Zen. And so they already were versed and trained in compassion and the importance of compassion. But here in the West, uh, many people start practicing Zen without a background in Buddhism. So I thought, well, we need a remedial course in compassion, we Zen people. So that's when I started. So that the, 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 the compassion is explicit, not implicit. So that's when I began um, talking at retreats uh, in our regular Zen groups uh, many years ago about Lojong teachings. Uh, I spoke about seven points of mind training, maybe the most famous of these texts. And uh, when I spoke about it in our groups in Mexico, uh, they transcribed all the talks that I gave uh, and you know, presented me with a big fat stack of bilingual pages, you know. And I was so moved by their doing that that I, that's when I said, well, okay, I'll make this into a book and dedicate it to them, which I did. The book is dedicated to all those people who made those transcriptions in our Mexican groups. So the book uh, in, the, in the original text proposes, it's called Seven Points of Mind Training, Heart Training. And there are 59 practice slogans organized under the heading of those seven points. And it's just like, and, and, the, and the slogans, so-called, are just like what we were doing uh, all day today. Phrases that you would drop into your meditation, that you would contemplate. And then, uh, as you move through the events of your lives, life, you would notice the slogans popping up. You would notice situations, life situations occurring that would evoke the slogan. It would, and it would be encouraging you to behave in a certain way and to look at situations in a certain way. The seven points of mind training are number one, resolve to begin. About motivation. And that's where we began this morning. That's what we've been practicing today, the first point. Second point, train in compassion. Third point, transform difficulties into the path. Fourth point, Make practice your whole life. Fifth point, learn how to extend your practice and how to assess it so you know how you're doing. Sixth point, the discipline of relationships because it turns out spiritual practice is actually not about you and your interiority. It's really about every single relationship in your life. Seventh point, living with ease in a crazy world. Learning how to cope beautifully in this world as it actually is without being frustrated that it is the way that it is. So those are the seven points. So in the little bit of time that we have left, I want to just share some, something from the book about the second point, which is where we're now ready to go, train in compassion. Compassion is having sympathy for others, specifically when others are suffering. So that's why Suffering is so important here because it's suffering that evokes compassion and compassion is the most wonderful feeling that there is. But paradoxically, it's completely connected to suffering. We have to be willing to go towards suffering rather than try to get around it if we want to be compassionate and experience compassion.
the essence of this path of compassion is loving others and being concerned for them. All day long we've been practicing the preliminary reflections and they give us a feeling that yes, we really do have to be serious about our lives. We really do have to awaken and change our lives. We realize that if we don't do that, if life is too dangerous, we have to do it. And once we undertake this effort, we realize that there's no way to do it alone. It's not just a task that you do by yourself. Because opening up means exactly opening up to what's around you, to others, to the world, to our radical connectedness. This love is based on a very deep insight that what we call self and what we call others, that these concepts, self and other, which seems so real to us, right? What could be more real than I am I and you are you, you know? What could be more real than that to us? But it's not really real. These are designations, concepts, habits of mind. They run deep, but they are not realities of the world. And this is really an important point. It sounds a little abstract, but it really is important because it means that true altruism, true love, is not self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's not a guilt-driven sense that we should be good, we should be nice, we should be kind. It's a profound recognition that self and other are not fundamentally different. In fact, they're only apparently different. This insight dawns on us from our work on the cushion. That's what deep meditation practice will do for us, little by little. It'll make us realize that this thing that we think we're protecting isn't there in the way that we think it is. Because of this, the range of activity and the feeling of compassion is much wider than we would expect. A whole world of altruism and its effects open up before us. We now understand in our guts, you know, we really understand now that the only way you could love yourself, really love yourself, is by loving others. And that the only way you could ever really love others is to love yourself. That these two things are not actually different, they're really one thing. The difference between them is very tiny, once we really understand. And when we take this truth into our hearts, it becomes really life-changing. And once we open to, it, open to it, we can't go back. We can no longer fool ourselves anymore with selfishness and resentment. As soon as it comes up, we know exactly what it is and where it comes from. We can no longer take it seriously. Of course, we're going to have selfish and resentful feelings. But now we know them for what they are. And they're far less compelling because we have seen for ourselves how stupid, childish, and blind these feelings actually are. And we can no longer make an argument for them in our own minds. Plus, we realize now, when we feel these things, it is so painful. You know, resentment, envy, anger, these things are so painful to us. All the emotions that flow from self-centeredness are painful. And we no longer feel compelled to go on feeling pain for stupid reasons. 
because we've seen through those reasons. So now it becomes almost impossible to be willfully, intentionally disrespectful of others, willfully, intentionally unkind, because we can see with our eyes just as concretely as we can look up and see the sky that all of life is one big sky warmed by a beautiful sun. To separate ourselves from others is just not the way it is. So we can't be resentful, hateful, self-centered. We can't favor ourselves over others. It just doesn't feel sensible anymore. Even if these old emotions of self-protection keep coming up, we just know better in our heart of hearts. We see that love is not just an emotional option, an emotion that we might feel or not feel. It's more than that. It's, it's the most basic fact of life. And now we know that it's a fact of life we need to align our hearts with if we want to live a good and happy life. This is far deeper question than the conventional ideas of goodness and niceness and compassion. Of course, we will be good and nice and compassionate, I'm sure, but it's much more than that. It's much more raw and much more real, much more visceral and much more intimate. These teachings make a distinction between absolute compassion and relative compassion. Absolute compassion is absolute love. A love that's bigger than any emotion, bigger than any any object, so big that there's no lover and no beloved because the two become the same thing. That's how big absolute compassion is. Within this love, there can't be loss. Because this love also includes absence. And nothing can ever be lost. Absolute bodhicitta is empty, perfect, expansive, joyful, spacious existence itself. When we sit and we return to awareness, just awareness, I was saying earlier today, we can safely set ourselves aside. We don't have to do anything. We can just merge with awareness itself. When we merge with awareness itself, we're merging with absolute compassion. Based on our training in absolute compassion, we can practice relative compassion. And that's where you roll up your sleeves and you go try to help somebody or love somebody, give them a big kiss, send them a card, encourage them, help them. And then, it, and then of course, it all gets messy, right? Because they get mad at you or this happens, that happens. You try to help somebody, it doesn't work. How many times have you done that, you know, helping somebody, it backfires. So there's a lot of skill involved in helping people effectively. But the two go together. It always, the relative compassion is backed up by a foundation of absolute compassion. And so when things don't work out, it doesn't matter. You just keep going. You don't get discouraged. That's where the Bodhisattva Energizer Bunny comes from. It's absolute compassion. So tomorrow, I think we'll uh, start um, during the instructions, maybe, uh, with uh, the sending and receiving practice, which some of you probably know about. It's a practice of relative compassion, really taking in the suffering of others, being willing to do that. 
based on a foundation of absolute compassion, endless love, which is identical with awareness itself. But for tonight, uh, in just, uh, I'm going to end in a minute, in this last minute, let's do a practice of absolute compassion. Find your breath, your body. And just return to awareness, the awareness itself. You know, uh, your eyes can grow old and wear out. Mary Grace was telling us about her eyes wearing out. Your body can wear out, your hearing can not be so good anymore. But the awareness itself that makes sight possible or hearing possible doesn't get old, doesn't grow old. Awareness doesn't grow old. Consciousness doesn't grow old. It can't be contained by a skull, a human skull. Somehow, this consciousness, awareness, this love, this endlessness illuminates our human life. And then when this body is worn out, it travels on. And yet, we can sit here and we can experience this awareness. Paying attention to the body and the breathing, we can rest in this boundless, empty, loving awareness. Because it's right here. We can rest in the open, expansive, loving mind. The open, expansive, loving heart. It's there with every single breath. I heard from uh, Mary Grace 
a little while ago, and she says uh, she's feeling somewhat better. She rested most of the day, slept a lot. She said, a little queasy still because she has stomach upset, but better. And she must be getting better because she, in, in, in her communication with me, she was talking about what, it, what will she talk about tomorrow in her Dharma talk. So that's a good sign. So I'm expecting her back at the very least for the Dharma talk. <laughs>